back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am your co-host, Andrew. And in this particular podcast, I'm hoping that we will resurrect a conversation that Phil and I had some 18 years ago now, uh, when we first saw this movie on the big screen, at, or maybe not the first time for either of us. but It wasn't my first time. Yeah, I, I think I'd I seen it before, remember. too. But uh, we got into a conversation specifically, I remember this very distinctly, about uh, Frank Sinatra's uh, epaulets being in focus while his face was not in the scene where he is uh, playing cards with, or getting uh, Lawrence Harvey to play cards. There's actually a definitive answer to this debate. I know, I know. As you can find in the trivia section <laughs> for this film on IMDb, which kind of squashes that 18 years of suspense. Uh, this oh, man. is Phil, your other co-host, and I, little in fact, was one of the original Chinese workmen who laid the track on this street, <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines of flirty dialogue in all of cinema. Yeah, yeah, although that line of flirty dialogue and the scene surrounding it is probably going to be a topic of additional conversation for us, because I don't know if there's a definitive answer to the questions that surround Janet Lee's character in this movie. Indeed. There uh, are not. Yeah, there are not. Uh, that voice you just heard is Drew returning back to the podcast. Uh, say hi to everybody, Drew. Hello, everybody. Drew has hey. brought us the 1962 film The Manchurian Candidate, uh, a classic film at this point. Um, I mean, it's been a classic for our entire lives, I guess. Uh, but uh, a classic nevertheless. And uh, it is uh, a film that I hadn't watched in quite a while, but I was keen to watch again. So uh, very excited to have you back on the podcast to talk about this movie. But before we do that, just want to tell you how you can find us on the web. If you haven't already found us, uh, you can find us at www.in-the-q. That's the letter Q.com. That's our website, and we have all of our episodes posted there, as well as a comment section where you can either leave comments about the podcast itself, we welcome your feedback, or you can leave suggestions of films that you would like to talk about on the podcast, and like Drew, you can come back on the podcast, or come on the podcast, and then come back again, and again, and again, if you want to, um, to talk about uh, various different movies that you are interested in discussing. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And you can like our page there. We'll fill up your newsfeed with all kinds of interesting anecdotal references and links to supplemental materials that enhance your viewing of the films that we discuss. And you can engage us in conversation on Twitter by searching for at ITQ Podcast. That's our Twitter handle. Uh, or finally, you can subscribe to our podcast by using any of your trusty old podcast aggregating apps like Overcast, Podcaster, or iTunes, and subscribe to the podcast and every single episode will come straight to you. We recommend that. Mm-hmm. We do indeed. So as I said, the film that we are talking about today is The Manchurian Candidate from 1962. Drew, before we get into the conversation about this film, I would love to hear why you recommended this film for us. This is I think a decidedly more normal film than most of the ones that you have brought to our table. Well, I have, I have an actual rational answer for this. <laughs> I was looking over the list of films. I really wanted to talk to you sure. guys uh, about, and I noticed that a good 80% of them were made in the eighties. Mm. And I thought, you know what? Do I really want to be the guy who only talks about cult films made in the 80s? And I thought, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Of do. course, yeah. No. Um, so I started going over my list of cult films that were not from the 80s. And I thought, I'll try something a little different. And this is one of my all-time favorite films of mm, yeah. all time. I say all-time twice because uh, I cannot stress enough how much I adore this movie. Um and I'm kind of curious to think, to hear what you two think if I tell you that I think this is a classic film, obviously, but do you think it is a cult film as well? Well, I think that unlike movies such as Zardoz, this movie is indisputably great. And it is, it's definitely a classic. Yeah. Cult classic? Hmm. I don't and know if I my, would consider it my, that. 
yeah, go ahead. Well, I would not put it in the same, uh, in any way, compare it to Zardoz. You know, only that I, only, I, I, I only love both of them. But... I only mentioned no, no, Zardoz because that was, that's what I associate with you, Drew. You know what? I'm I'm okay with that. And here's the reason why I, I recommend this as a as a cult classic, because for a very long period of time, twenty or more years, this film was not available to anybody. It was not available in theaters, it was not available on video, it was not available on DVD. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, until nineteen eighty eight it was gone and folks did still watch it and people would gather together in groups. Uh, and in a way, it had its own cult following, um, especially among conspiracy theorists. Sure, yeah. And there was a a mystery about it uh, that kind of grew in its absence that people would, you know, if you could get a copy of it, you know. So, it, and, and that's why I was wondering if it if it's still, I don't know, in your in your uh, opinion. Could, in that sense, could it be considered a cult film? And I asked because I really do want to be the guy who talks about cult films. I feel like <laughs> I may have not, not, not veering completely off the tracks. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, one of the interesting things about this film that might uh, jive a little bit with your um, assessment of it is that this film, when people talk about great cinema and they talk about great films, and especially when they talk about great films of this era... This movie doesn't seem to come up nearly as often as I would expect it to. Um, it doesn't seem to be one of the ones that people point to as a just a standout uh, film. Now, it is on the AFI's list of the 100 greatest films, or at least it was on the first one, it if is, I'm not it's mistaken. It uh, is ranked at 67. Yeah, which is very respectable. Um, yeah, it's also was on Roger Ebert's list of great movies, too. Yeah, and I, you know, that's an astonishing list uh, as well. Uh, so I, you know, it, it's hard to, to say it's, it's, I mean, like what then qualifies something for being cult status, if not the sort of underground nature of it. Um, but I do feel like if, if it was kind of this underground, uh, conspiracy theorist favorite for such a long time and then was difficult to get a hold of and then sort of emerged into the, uh, in, into public view again in the the 90s maybe in time for the AFI to 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 give it a high ranking on the on the list um i i can't help but feel like it's re-entered the shadows um to some extent cuz i i never hear anybody talk about it so in that sense maybe well i would also mention the very idiosyncratic and bizarre sense of humor that permeates this whole film as being sure. the kind of thing that could, that could classify it as a cult film. Uh, it just, in addition to the fact that it was unavailable for a long time. Um, but I think also you, when you've got stars like Frank Sinatra in your movie, yeah. uh, I think that kind of tends to draw some of the, some of the cultness away. Janet um, Lee, two years after psycho. You know, yeah, Angela Lansbury. Yeah, but the, the sense of humor, the dark humor of, of it, the black comedy aspect of it, I think those are things that would sort of qualify it to be cult. But at the same time, it's been canonized by so many people as being one of the best films. I think it's kind of, even though people don't talk about it, I think it still has the reputation that kind of keeps it up in the pantheon and not in, down in the cult section. So I'll take that as a maybe. <laughs> how, how about this, Drew? Uh, within that pantheon, it is certainly the dark horse. It's certainly the the cult. If there's if there's going to be anything on that AFI top 100 list that would be considered a cult-ish film or a cult classic, it would probably be this movie. I'll take it. All right. I'll take it. Great. <laughs> and I assume also that in our conversation, we are going to get into some pretty heavy... Manchurian Candidate spoilers. Oh yeah, no I, I question. Think in order to discuss this properly, we're going to spoil what is <laughs> one of the most amazing endings to a movie. So, uh, you know, listeners, if you have not yes. seen the Manchurian Candidate, turn this podcast off. Turn this podcast off. The, Please. The Manchurian Candidate is filled the with 1962. Yes. Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, not the remake, not the. Jonathan Demi remake, right? It was it was Jonathan Demi, yeah. Right? Wow, that was strange. Um, 
that was when he also he made the truth about Charlie around that time, right? Which was a remake of Charade. Yeah, like he was really remake happy for a few years there. Um, those are his dark years. <laughs> <laughs> those are his dark years. Well, they made they remade Psycho, not Jonathan Demme, but they remade yeah. Psycho around the same time, and it was like, why? Yeah, yeah, that was why? a weird that was a weird moment. Like right now, we're in this thing where they're rebooting all these old things, but they're giving them a new coat of paint. You know, that those those movies were like, let's take incredible classics and remake them. Anyway, uh, that being said, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about this movie, and this movie contains a great number of thrills and twists and turns and revelations that are really fun. So if you have not seen the film, go see it, then come back to this podcast. So uh, just to give a, I guess, a kind of rough plot of the film, uh, or should we even do that? Or should we just go into it if we've given this kind of a spoiler alert? <laughs> well, how about just we establish the premise of, of the story the and premise, then take it from there? The premise of the story is that uh, Lawrence Harvey's character, Raymond Shaw, uh, has gone away to the war, um, the war being the Korean War in this case, and uh, he is captured, he's a prisoner of war. Um, he's an unlikable fellow. Nobody in his company likes him. And uh, when he returns from the war, he is not only beloved by all of his squad mates, uh, they say that he is the kindest, uh, gen- most generous, bravest, warmest, the bravest, most warmest. wonderful human being I have ever known in my life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They all uh, spout the same thing. Uh, about him, and uh, and he is being uh, lauded for having um, committed this great uh, act of uh, bravery and heroics in order to eliminate an entire enemy battalion or whatever. And uh, he returns to the United States, uh, and his mother and his father in law who is a who are both pol- politicians but the father-in-law senator iceland is really making a play for the vice presidency of the united states uh they are using his heroism as a political prop and he resents this um and uh the men of his company of whom major marco pray, played by frank sinatra is kind of the sort of lead, are having these nightmares. They're having nightmares about the uh, the war and specifically about a very strange situation where they are sitting in the lobby of a hotel while a women's garden party is happening. Uh, but the garden party seems to be oscillating back and forth between a bunch of women at a garden party and a bunch of communist uh, psychological experimenters, I guess. Yeah, that's probably a good good place to, to start to, to jump off into the conversation, sure. I think. Because um, that scene in particular was one of the things that I first remember seeing on public television when I was a kid. Sure. Because this movie was shown on PBS uh, in Washington, D.C., and I remember loving this movie as a child, being at, like, age... 11 or 12 or so. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere that sometimes children like films for grown-ups because the the films that p- paint a strong perspective, a strong dynamic between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes children have that kind of natural instinct of what's right and wrong. And in this film, you definitely have authority figures who are painted as the bad guys and and you definitely root for bennett marco and you root for raymond to to get his act together and break out of this spell that he's under and um the scene that you just mentioned in the interrogation which is an amazing sequence oh yeah incredible. uh, the camera does a 360 degree pan and while the camera is panning they 
completely changed the set. Yeah. And when it pans back around again after making a complete circle, there's been no edit, there's been no cut, but you can just obviously see that they're in a completely different world. And it's a it's a dazzling piece of direction that even as a child I was like, This is the shit, man. Like this is this is a <laughs> kick ass movie. Well, it should be said, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but this film is directed by John Frankenheimer, um, who has a, a sort of up, up and down kind of uh, history in Hollywood. He made some real great films and he made some real stinkers over the years. But uh, I, I think this film comes from his golden period. Oh, of, yeah. Of this, he was making The Train, yep. Seven Days in May, yep. Seconds. Those are all classics yeah. along with this film. Yeah, definitely. And and some people say some of his later movies like Ronin are really extraordinary. Um, but certainly not The Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, <laughs> which, incidentally, I just watched a documentary about called Lost Soul. That is it's a great documentary. Great documentary. Really, really good. Um, speaking of uh, strange cult films, that's I think that qualifies for sure. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just to just to even though this should be our our breaking off point, uh, just to sort of clarify the plot for folks, um, Shaw appears to be under mind control by these uh, communists. And communists. It's hard to tell who is in on the ploy and who is not, and exactly what the aims are, and uh, and he can't really trust anybody. And all the while, Marco is trying to figure out what's going on. So that's the rough plot. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, Phil, I think that this is, I mean, this entire film is just virtuosic directing. I mean, John Frankenheimer just, everything about, there's not a moment of this film that isn't, uh, doesn't feel like there's forward momentum to it. You know, it, there's not any point of it that doesn't feel like it's propelling you onward into the next moment and you're just at the edge of your seat the whole time even now i've seen this movie probably i don't know at least six or seven times now in my life and i it's still just as exciting to me now as it was the first time i saw it which is an impressive feat for any movie i think i mean indeed yeah yeah. i think that also it's one of those films where it begs to be rewatched Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that could also uh, make a case for its cachet as a cult film, too. A movie sure. that may have been so ahead of its time that it was a little <laughs> bit out of step, but years later, it still holds up as being so powerful. Like, I mean, just the scene when uh, when Raymond has to assassinate one of his fellow company members. Oh, man. And it's this, like, this, this kid... Who has like this innocent smile on his face the whole time? Buddy Lembeck. Buddy Lembeck, and then Raymond just shoots him in cold blood. And for a film from 1962, this is a this is a violent, bloody movie. Um, when it was re-released, it was given the the PG-13 yeah. rating, which I think is is fair. But I I tend to think that movies didn't really become violent until like Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, that's usually uh, what American. People... American films, but this is a film that predates Bonnie and Clyde by five years, so it's pretty forward-thinking in a lot of ways. And it's interesting, too, that they made the decision to film it in black and white as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think really adds a lot. I, I, I'm hard-pressed to imagine what this film would be like in color. I think yeah. a lot of the directorial work, I don't think it would have worked quite as well. There's some shots in here uh, that I think you'd be distracted by, I think, what's happening. I think Lawrence Harvey does such an um, incredible job. I think everyone, acting-wise, does an incredible job. But Lawrence Harvey has this quality to him. It's all in the eyes, but not just in the eyes, it's behind the eyes. There's so much internal struggle going on that I almost feel like if we were exposed to color... It would be hard to. It'd be very hard to focus, even though when you listen to Frankenheimer's fairly sparse commentary on the of the film, a lot of what he, a lot of the shots he chose were based off of the lighting, especially outside lighting. I don't know if mm-hmm. either of you have listened to 
the director's commentary. I have not. I, I'm um, looking forward to it, though. But a lot of it, he discusses New York at certain times of day, at certain times of year, and he... I Very rarely do I hear directors sing the praises of everybody else. You know, he'll explain why he did a shot the way it is, but he'll talk about the lighting direction. He'll talk about the cinematography. He'll talk about the actors. Boy, that man loves Sinatra. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's all... Every time you're in Raymond's apartment, he talks about why the shot was taken at this time because the certain light is coming in, and it's like we, we slowly bring in each individual light bulb on to get this particular... There's a lot of shadow going on. There's a lot yeah, of, yeah. like Phil said, there's a lot of light play that's happening. And yeah, you can take uh, that as allegory as to what's happening both internally and, you know... But there's also a lot of shades of gray in all aspects of this film. Sure. And uh, sure. you'll find those shades in any black and white film as well, especially one that's well photographed and designed. But in a way, I think that I agree with you that the, the black and white adds to the allegory of good and evil and then all the shades in between. But in a way, what, what you've kind of got here is a, an unintentional period piece on the part of Frankenheimer. I, I'm not going to say that he had this in mind when he made the decision to shoot in black and white, but maybe part of me thinks that the filmmakers knew that this furor over communism and the fear of communism would not last forever and you've got a film that's like a time capsule from that period, mm. from that extreme fear that we can't really fully comprehend because we weren't alive back then. But by making it black and white, it kind of keeps it as an artifact of that era, of that time. And it uh, it keeps it sort of like a period piece. Yeah. Well, I might, I might agree with you visually, uh -huh. but I think as far as the screenplay is concerned, both myself and... Roger Ebert uh, would say that that this is a, a it still feels like a contemporary. Yeah. This, I mean, you ask me why I chose this. I chose this movie because I love this movie, <laughs> and when I first saw this movie over twenty years ago, never in my life did I think that we would be living through the events that are being shown in this movie. But well, yeah, you I'm... could take Iselin and put Trump in there, and you have got a oh, perfect yeah. contemporary. I mean. You show this to somebody now who doesn't know who Sinatra is, uh, and it could have, it could be have been made today. Yeah, and and I think that uh, you're hitting on something that I really wanted to to ask you about specifically, Drew, which was whether you selected this partially because of the politic, the politics of today, the political climate that we're in, because it was interesting watching this now ever after having not watched it for for probably five or six years, and seeing how uh, immediate and real and vital it seemed <laughs> in our mm -hmm. political climate, yeah. like how incredibly uh, frightening it was in a lot of ways. Um, uh, just to think, you know, uh, you know, with all, everything that's going on with Russia, Comey's testifying tomorrow, you know, I mean, like we got a whole world that's, uh, you know, we just got to hope that uh, Comey doesn't have a daughter who's in love with uh, someone who's, been brainwashed right baron uh, trump uh it, it's essentially <laughs> it's essentially if um melania was was running the show um you know yeah. I, I don't know that wouldn't surprise me in the in the least um <laughs> no absolutely this was in on my mind when yeah. when you asked me to come back on uh this was something that it just as we move further and further into 2017 and as part of the, the Trump administration, I just can't help like every day I turn on the news and it feels like, you know, when people start talking about McCarthyism, yeah. I think Islandism and I yep. think of this film and the idea of using scare tactics, which is certainly not uh, something that McCarthy, you know, is the only person who's ever tried this, but sure. you can't help but draw comparisons and when you also see important journalists uh, who are being assassinated throughout mm -hmm. uh, the last year to uh, to quiet down stories, yeah, yeah, I think this this resonates yeah. really strongly. Yeah, it sure does to the point where it's it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and one of one of my favorite moments in this entire film um, took on an entirely new sort of uh, freshness for me and made me, you know, kind of 
hit me right in the heartstrings, and that's when uh, Senator Jordan, who is uh, the uh, sort of person who is the most uh, feverishly against everything that Iceland stands for and hates him the most, uh, he's confronted at a party by Angela Lansbury, Angela Lansbury's character, <clears throat> uh, Mrs. Eleanor Shaw Iceland, and uh, she asks him if uh, my husband goes for the nomination, will you block him? And he gives this really great short speech about how not only will he block him, he'll do everything in his, his power to make sure that he is impeached and that he is... You know, uh, he he is punished basically for his wrongdoings, and it's this wonderful, beautiful little speech that's uh, just so perfectly delivered. You could tell he was feeling the burn in that scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, and th- there's a line that essentially says that um, he he would do more damage even if he unintentionally he would do more damage just from essentially being the wreck of a human being that he is than any of our enemies could ever accomplish yeah and you're just kind of like i was like wow yeah well you know i agree with you guys that this this movie holds up very well and it's timely but it's it's then again it's it's not exactly it's the political leanings of this film weren't exactly something that had never been seen, and they were being explored in other movies at the time as well. Like, uh, I I remember when um, I watched Spike Lee interview Bernie Sanders uh, before yeah. Bernie had to leave the race, and uh, and Spike Lee drew comparisons that, not that Trump was Iceland, but that Trump was Lonesome Roads in this film called A Face in the Crowd, which mm-hmm. was made in 1957, which would predate this film by five years. So I think that, um, I think as with, with good art in general, it can speak to the moment and then it can also hold up over time. Sure. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, did either of you have either of you gentlemen read the book that this movie is based on? I have not regrettably. I have not. Uh, No, they stick relatively close to the uh, original Richard Condon script, which That's only good. came out three or four years before uh, the movie was released. So it would have been, and, it would have been written uh, like just following the sort of height of the, of HUAC and the McCarthyism and all that kind of fun stuff. It was, yeah, I think it, it was released in 59. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fabulous book. It's one of my favorites and I reread mm. it once every five years or so. I'll, I'll pick up, I'm reading it right. I'm rereading it right now about halfway through it. And it's just, it's delightful, Condon's um, style, and uh, most of the dialogue is pulled straight from the the book, though it's placed in different places mm-hmm. throughout. And there's a lot of plot that um, doesn't doesn't show up in the in the movie for uh, obvious reasons, particularly the relationship between um, Shaw and his mother, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and uh, and her backstory, which is there's there's a lot more going on, um, but uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, Major Marco and um, Rosie, because you had said there was a scene on a train that uh, you guys yes. had. Uh, no, no, you were talking about the um, the 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 um, faded scene. Um, well, no, I I was I was. Very, I was always intrigued and fascinated by their meeting on the train and the, the totally bizarre dialogue that they share. And I wasn't sure if it was meant to reflect Ben and Marco's state of mind at the time. I thought, I also thought that maybe Rosie was some kind of a spy who was trying to undermine Marco. Uh, it's such a strange, strangely written scene between the two of them. Well, and it, it's just the film is full of very odd kind of interactions like that. In the book, the dialogue is all this. It's all taken from the book, and in the book, there is no resolution to that. Well, that's so whether or not um, I, I, uh, she is is a spy or is is not. Yeah, and um, I think that um, not only Phil is it written strangely, it is performed strangely. Uh, I mean, the big debate about it is whether she is his handler, right? Is Marco's handler? Uh, but Marco is standing there in a cold sweat. Uh, 
like he's suffering from some sort of, you know, fever dream or, or some something strange is happening with him. And he's just sort of breathlessly answering all of the things that she says. It is a very inhuman interaction. It's a very strange uh, back and forth. Neither one of them is behaving in a, in a normal fashion. And I can't help but read it against the flashbacks that Raymond has when he first meets Josie, and they have an extremely bizarre interaction. Yeah. And and it's it's I've never quite been able to get a handle on that flashback because it's at one hand it seems like a a scene that's played for laughs, especially when Josie, her father, and Raymond are all sitting around the table laughing. Yeah. And the voiceover is like, and we were so wonderful. Everyone was wonderful. <laughs> uh, and then immediately a, a switches tone to become more serious. I mean, this movie has one of the oddest and yet strangely most consistent bizarre tones that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also begs the question. I know that in the film, if you read the film, just sort of as it plays out, um, Josie wears a queen of diamonds costume to this party, um, which is the sort of trigger for, uh, Raymond Shaw to, uh, follow orders. Right. Um, and she just, we're supposed to believe that she just sort of, happens upon this and wears it to the party but what are the odds <laughs> that that would actually be what are the odds that that would be the case and are is is there some counterintelligence going on here is this is this an attempt to undo the brainwashing of the communists what 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 do you guys think well in the story in the book um she just shows up to the party in that it's it's a little deus ex machina you sure. know like that's just it's a little too convenient. Sure. Uh, I remember the first time I watched it, went, no, 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 there's got to be more to it. And I think part of what I enjoy about this film is when you have scenes like on the train or in the dream sequences um, or in the uh, this this cost masquerade party, mm-hmm. um, it makes you as a viewer doubt what it is that you're seeing. Yeah. And since all of this is about whether or not an individual's perceptions are true or not because they're being controlled by someone else. I think Condon sort of had that idea when he was writing it. And I think that idea came through so that when Axelrod wrote the, the script for it, they just included it. I mean, that's that scene plays out exactly as it is in the book. Well, yeah. And Frankenheimer on top of that, after Axelrod, interpreted it that way. I mean, he's clearly directing his actors to act act in a particular way or in that case mm-hmm. um to play to play it off like it's a mistake that this is just a random thing that's happened. I mean, it's it's a very keen kind of uh uh toying with the audience that's going on for sure. I mean, I think there's no mm-hmm. question that they're kind of trying to play subvert our our comfort in the film. I feel like that's also kind of a a literary quality too, like where sometimes something will happen in a book and it will be so remarkable and so much of a coincidence and yet it isn't given a whole lot of added uh, discussion or, or analysis. It just kind of is. It's just part of it. Sure. And um, if you think about the film... Refresh my memory, guys. As far as the causality of that scene, after Raymond sees Josie in the costume, does her costume affect him in any way? Because he's already yeah. been talking to his mom. Yeah, he's basically in like a trance from his mother having shown him the Queen of Diamonds. And then she says, stay right here. I'll be back in a jiffy. And then she walks through the the French doors and is in this queen of diamonds costume and it untriggers him, right? Seeing it again, kind of like untriggers him, um, okay. which can I just, yeah. just want to say that shot directed is we don't see Josie yet. We just hear a knock at the door. We're, we're focusing on Raymond who is standing stark still sure. having his, his session. It just interrupted. And Raymond turns and he looks to the camera and there's yep. this twitch yep. 
at his eyes, just his eyes, as if he is being uh, entranced oh. and repulsed at the very same moment. And then it cuts. And we to see Josie. Josie in the doorway in that costume. And it is such a beautiful edit. Yeah. It's so well done. Yeah. It's really great um, because we don't know what it is that's sort of knocking him out of his stupor um, mm-hmm. until we see her and uh, and it becomes clear. Um, but yeah, it Phil, it definitely has an effect on her, uh, on him. Why do you mm-hmm. ask? Just because I couldn't recall. Um, I mean, knowing, knowing the later events of the film, he still kills her. Uh, and I wasn't sure if seeing her in that costume actually did have a pronounced effect on him. Yeah. It's, yeah, a, it's, it's the only it reason that he left that room. Up, it sets up the deprogramming as well. You know, yeah. if one, one card works the second, what they call the second mechanism, then multiple cards will... Um, An entire deck of queen, <laughs> queens of diamonds. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Well, you know, psychic fish when they collide together cause anyway. <laughs> but this this reminds me of what we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast about Bennett Marco's uh, soft focus shot. Yeah, and I'm I do remember us noticing the soft focus, and you could also say that it's justified and it's established from the very beginning of this film when we see Henry Silva's character. Yeah, uh, in in the fields of Korea or whatever. And his face is very close to the frame, and it's soft. And then only the only focus is the approaching soldiers behind him. Yeah. So you could say that this is a consistent stylistic motif throughout the film. But yes, the truth is, yeah. John Frankenheimer chose that take because it was Frank Sinatra's best performance, and not because. And it just happened focus. to be out of focus. Yeah, but I do remember us. I remember us being excited to talk about that. And this, of course, is in what nineteen ninety eight. So, um, yeah, the, the internet was so. there, but it wasn't quite the inexhaustible resource that it is now. And uh, True. and we, I remember us sitting there going like, "Wow, do you think that this this reflects the, the state of mind of Shaw's character? Like where he, you know, he he's seeing just past the face of the person who's in front of you know, like he's not quite." Uh, not quite 100% there and we're meant to experience the same thing because it's a subjective thing but then you learn that it's just yeah it was just the best performance <laughs> and it happened to be a little bit out of focus yeah, uh, oh, yeah. kills the, the magic uh, in the interviews he's like it was the longest walk he's ever had to take because Sinatra who who ran the show I mean he, oh sure this this movie was not getting made without Sinatra he was a superstar at the time um, he was, yeah. This is this is the top of his game. Yeah, I have, I have um, his he said to go to Sinatra and tell him who hates taking second takes. Sure, like, hates it. Yeah, he had to take a second take and a third take and a fourth take and a fifth take, and they still went with the first take, even though everybody, the studio and the cinematographers <laughs> and all the editors, they all said don't do it, and they immediately people praised them for being able to get inside the mind of Raymond Shaw's disturbed psyche. Yeah. He saw his, you know, the one person in the world he trusted <laughs> being a blurred image. Uh, and it works. You know, if you don't know the true story behind it, it works great. I yeah. mean, you can, it inspires that sort of conversation, which is really what it, you know, I know he wishes he could say he did it on purpose. In fact, he has said <laughs> he did it on purpose, but he did not. And uh, so there we go. Yeah, there it is. There it yeah. is. Um, Roger Ebert referred to uh, Angela Lansbury. And see, I, I got the quote here. Um, yeah. uh, Angela Lansbury's uh, Mrs. Eislin, nominated for an Academy Award, is one of the great villains of movie history. Mm. Fierce, focused, contemptuous of the husband, she treats like a puppet. She has, we gather, plotted with the Russians and Chinese to use the red scare of Eislinism to get him into office where she will run things from behind the scenes. Uh, my God. God, the first time I saw this film. Yeah. And she quietly walked into the room dressed as little Bo Peep and oh, turned man. to Raymond and said, Raymond, why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire? Oh, yeah. My jaw dropped. Oh, My yeah. My jaw dropped. She is such a vindictive, spiteful woman. 
Oh, she's uh, it's she's the worst. Phenomenal. Yeah, she's it's the worst. It's such a great performance. Like it, it is so. This character is so fully inhabited by Angela Lansbury in this movie, and of course, the first time I saw this, you know, pretty much the only thing that I knew Angela Lansbury for was Jessica Fletcher and Murder She Wrote. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. who's just delightful. So <laughs> to right. see her as this, you know, conniving Machiavellian sort of, you know, horrible human being. Uh, it really kind of uh, throws you for a loop. Um, sure. Do you know who they wanted originally for this part? Who? Lucille Ball. Sinatra oh, wanted Lucille Ball for this part. And um, um, I, I think that Frankenheimer had just worked with her in another film, but prior to this and showed Sinatra um, some scenes that she was in. Because the tricky thing is, She's playing Raymond's mother. Yeah. And she's only three years older than Lawrence Harvey. Yeah. Now, this speaks to two things. One, the amazing acting ability of Angela Lansbury. Sure. And two, how odd Hollywood is about casting women in their <laughs> in their age differences. I, I feel like in many ways she, sh- she should both be both, um, like, insulted by this <laughs> Right, fact. right. Uh, but also congratulated for for being able to pull it off. Well, not just I mean, pull this... it off, but pull it off with a plum. I mean, she was, as you said, nominated for an Academy Award for this uh, performance, and rightly so. I think it's really just it's such an incredibly full performance for you know for a character that you know total screen time is not massive in the movie. No, absolutely not. And uh, but she leaves such a strong impression, just such an incredibly strong impression. Sure, and also her character is fully formed by the time we see her in the film. We never actually mm-hmm. witnessed her, the origin of how fucked up she is. Angela Ensbury had to internalize all that stuff. Yeah. She had to, she had to bring it to the role and to figure out for herself what motivated her. And, uh, it's something that I noticed about, uh, Timothy Hutton's performance in ordinary people. Whereas mm. we could instantly see what this character was like as soon as they appeared on screen but they had all this baggage and all this backstory that was not explained to us. And they yeah. just had to kind of come up with it. And then we believe them because they were so convincing. Yeah. I imagine in some ways it's helpful to have something like the book, which goes into a tremendous amount of detail about who um, that character is to begin mm-hmm. with, uh, to, to start off. In fact, um, you know, given the subject matter they actually went to kennedy someone went to kennedy to ask if it was okay if this movie even got made like would this be all right oh, kennedy, kennedy looked at him and said who's playing the mother like that was that was you know, this is this book was that <laughs> kind of a hit that he's like oh yeah 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 who's yeah mom oh great yeah perfect. oh yeah sounds good yeah perfect um <laughs> that's great that's great um, this film uh, was completed in only 39 shooting days. Wow. And a week of that, a week of that was just the um, the, the, the brainwashing. Oh, they yeah. They filmed com- in completion four separate times. Wow. They completed that entire scene in four separate times um, because they had to do it um, for both the garden party and the, the communists group. Sure. For the white for the white actors and then for the the second dream for the black actor to have them all be black actors in the garden club. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is, I think, some, some of the most disturbing stuff to see these kind of polite women talking about flowers, gardenias and then um, asking him uh, to kill then his... not with not with the knife. Yeah. With the hands. Yeah. Use here. Use yeah. this scarf. Holds up, holds up the handkerchief. It's just like, here, use this. Um, Phil, you said something earlier I wanted to draw attention to. Is that something I really appreciate about the script. The, there's a black and white to who is good and evil. Mm-hmm. But um, the villains in this piece, the communist villains, are all portrayed as being incredibly civil. Um Yen Lo, the the main brainwasher, yeah. has a sense of humor, and yeah. uh, there's an argument about whether or not Raymond killed a squad or a battalion because that would be insulting 
to the Chinese and they're like, well, oh, thank you so much for even thinking of it in that order. And right, there's, right. you know, like as they're doing these horrible brainwashing things, uh, they all, they're very relaxed about it. Whereas our other villains, the American villains are these horrible, intense, loud, angry sort of, you know, the, the, Is the As Island aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, they're, um, they're buffoons. Yeah. And that's precisely how a lot of the rest of the world, you know, sees Americans, mm -hmm. especially when we have presidents like we have now. So <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I mean, yeah, portraying the the Russian and the, uh, I guess, Korean or Chinese uh, bad guys as being more refined, and then portraying Iceland as this loudmouth, brash, you know, obnoxious, ignorant person. Um, I think it's it's kind of a sly remark about how different nations are represented and how they see each other, sure, especially yeah. the U.S. I mean, the fact that they actually cast Asian actors to play Asian characters <laughs> is is impressive in and of itself. Well, it's, I mean, it's the casting in this film, not international casting, was is quite good. Yeah, I mean, it, it it seems to be something that Hollywood can't get right in this day and age. So. Uh, kind of amazing that no, they, they could do it, you know, 55 years ago. Uh, I mean, speaking about cultural representation, we have a judo fight in this movie. Oh, it's such we a great scene. A no, no stunt actors, Frank Sinatra, uh, kicking, kicking butt and breaking uh, his own finger, breaking his own finger. Yeah. Yeah. Cut karate chopping through a table and it's a, it's a fairly intense scene and it's violent. If you think about it, that scene is like there are some holds and some grabs, and he kicks him when he's down and pulls his arm behind his back and really yeah. gives it to him. It's a it's a great little fight sequence. It still yeah. holds up pretty well. It holds up pretty well. It does. Um, even if yeah. with, even with a there's like a repeated sound effect in it that's like a uh uh yeah or something like that that's kind of weird, but other than that, it's yeah. it's it's pretty pretty dope. Uh, you know, when they're talking about cult movies or movies that you, you like to quote the lines and, you know, aside from the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Sure. And why don't you play pass the time by playing a little solitaire? Sometimes when we're doing um, a lot of activities, uh, I'll just shout out, what was Raymond doing with his hands? <laughs> yeah, what was Raymond doing with his hands? How did the women, the garden women turn into Chinese people? I mean, like, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah. How did the old ladies turn into Russians? That's, That's yeah. How did the old ladies turn into Russians? Into Russians. Uh, what is Raven doing with his hands? <laughs> what is Raven doing with his hands? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is a memorable film in so many different ways, and certainly the climax of the movie is extremely oh. intense and very memorable. And actually, when you guys were talking earlier about the um, cinematography and the choice between color and black and white, I think specifically about that sequence and how loud it would be in color and how sort of indecipherable it, it, it would be to be at one of those conventions. And I'm not saying that, it, you know, there haven't been plenty of really good films with a lot of action going on like that, but specifically when uh, uh, Sinatra is scanning the audience, looking, you know, looking around the auditorium, looking for something that's going on and the way that he figures out where it it's happening is uh, by seeing that there's a light on in one of the sort of uh, maintenance booths or electrical booths up at the top of the uh, auditorium. Uh, I, I don't think that, I think that something like that would not work quite as well in color. It's just like such a beautiful thing to see, like to have all of this stuff there and then have everything go black and this one dot of white, like right in the middle of the screen. It's one mm -hmm. of the most striking moments of realization that I know of in cinema you know just like realizing like figuring that figuring out the game you know yeah and uh, to sort of piggyback on that the, all those films that i mentioned in the beginning as being great john frankenheimer films from the 60s mm -hmm. part of this run all of them up through 1966's seconds were in black and white yeah so i think he he was adept at using it and i think he i'm sure that he was well aware of the impact that that scene would have, you know, with just that one light shining through. Sure. The, the other thing with that scene, this is, of course, the, the final convention scene. He does a couple of things that really set that scene up 
just marvelously. Yeah. And the first is when they rented out Madison Square Garden and it's empty and it's just Raymond dresses a priest walking through what is mostly quiet, empty, echoing halls. And the only thing you hear is the people cleaning the seats. Yeah. But we follow him through the door, through the hallway, up the stairs, through another door, through the kitchen, through another stairs, up until he gets, we can see him slowly traversing, 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 traversing until he gets to this place. And he sits quietly looking at the camera. But when Sinatra figures out what's going yeah. on, we know that there's a limit, as the audience, we know there's a very limited amount of time. And we see Sinatra running through those same shots you yeah. know, down the hallway, up the stairs. Uh, Sinatra has a, an absolutely goofy run, and I imagine anybody who um, has to wear a, a full military uniform, dress uniform and then run through hallways is going to run like that. But sure. the fact that that run is also juxtaposed with a speech that we already have heard, knowing that there is a deadline, that all the action is going to occur at a certain point in the speech, and it is this race against time, that... Yep gets me every single yeah. time i find myself like kind of like heart beating faster it's so well composed that's such a basic lesson that all filmmakers should know about and i feel it's been sadly forgotten a lot of times these days if the filmmaker does not know what are the parameters if they don't know when yeah. the proverbial bomb is going to go off then you don't really have much in the way of suspense and in this case, we know when the shot's going to be fired, so we know what the stakes are. And we understand why Frank Sinatra is hurrying the way he is. And I feel like too many movies these days are kind of sloppy, and they're not, as, they're not very well thought out mm -hmm. in terms of being able to... being almost ignorant of, of the audience and, and not even caring or knowing how they can become active participants in the outcome. Yeah. There's a certain art to foreshadowing, right? You can foreshadow with such a heavy hand that you've ruined anything that's coming after. But rather than doing so with a heavy hand, um, with this, he's such a deft touch yeah. to it. You know, it's, they, it, the, the setup pays off. Well, and it's yeah. a bit of it's a bit of the Chekhov's gun philosophy, right? It, you show the audience right. something that they are going to see used later. So in this case, we see that distance being traversed by one character, and we are going to see that traversed by another character in a very different set of circumstances and in a very different way. Um, and that 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 does seem to me to be not necessarily a lost art, but something that we rarely see being utilized anymore, which is just like the uh, allowing your your audience to become familiar with its surroundings in such a way that it makes them feel as though they are there and that they are participating in what is going on. And, uh, you know, I complain about this all the time with uh, action movies and uh, uh, big blockbusters and stuff like that, which is that uh, spatial geography matters. It, it, it matters for your audience to know where things are and what's going on and be able to draw these connections when they see these sorts of things happening. Any, any good chase scene that's worth its salt, any good chase scene that we've ever seen, you're, you're generally going to see the same territory being covered by one person then by the next person. Then by, you know, the first person covers another set of territory. Then the second person covers that same set of territory in a different, slightly different way. Um, it, it really, I mean, it's good filmmaking. <laughs> it's basically what it comes down to. Um, and Frankenheimer, I mean, this is, uh, if not his best film, certainly one of the best. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. It's just a great, great movie, top to bottom, front to back. Uh, I could I could watch it another seven times right now. I could. That's true. The code of this film... Yes. You know, you have this, this, the action, and there's such a sense of relief. Mm. You know, this, I mean, they, poor Raymond, he's, he's set up at the beginning to be this completely unlikable character, and he yeah. is unlikable because, uh, not because of the brainwashing. He's just an unlikable human being because of his mother, but, you know, what he does with the assassination of um, Jordan and Josie, like, you know, killing the, the two people who are closest to him 
in essentially in the world and then being able to take revenge um, and then to take his own life. You know, I mean, this is, we still haven't even talked about the connection between this and the Kennedy assassination, which I'm sure we'll get to, but you know, how do you, I'm not so end, sure we'll get to it. <laughs> maybe not, but how do you end something like that? And uh, in the book, there's a lot of talking about what it actually means to be a medal of honor winner. You know, mm. this is something that um, is bestowed on Raymond and it's a total lie. Yeah. It's right? a farce. Yeah. You know, this is like the greatest honor any any like in the book it says there are presidents who would say they would rather be a medal of honor winner than to be the president to, to earn that kind of respect sure and to have raymond put the medal on him after he's committed this act and then to take his own life and then to have sinatra end it i mean the movie ends with sinatra reading off actual um acts of courage that medal of honor winners have done uh and to follow with um what does he say? He's uh, he he kind of reads reads off what actually happened to to Raymond, and it's it's kind of brilliant. He that, says something like Raymond Shaw, forced to commit acts so heinous yeah. they cannot be repeated here. Yeah, yeah. Need to commit acts too unspeakable to be cited here by an enemy who had captured his mind and his soul. He freed himself at last, and in the end, heroically and unhesitantly, gave his life to save his country. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen is the scene when he kills Jordan and then he kills Josie. Oh, it's the worst. I mean, I remember as, when I saw it for the first time, I was, it was just so devastating. And then I'm really even more moved that they included him actually leaving the building and you can see tears streaming down his cheeks because somewhere inside, he a part of him knows what he did was completely wrong. Yeah. Even though he was brainwashed, and it kind of it kind of opens up the conversation about brainwashing a bit more too, to think about how much how much of a say does he have? How much of the real Raymond is actually present when he's doing these things? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like sitting sitting in an automatic car that that you know you you can see where you're going, but you can't do anything about. About it, and that scene is so quick, and that that camera angle, the low camera angle, and the heavy shading, and it's yeah. it just pop, he's dead. She runs down, pop, she's dead, and he walks and has to step over, over her, body. her body. Yeah, yeah. Oh. The bullet hole right between her eyes, just right in the middle of her forehead. Um, yeah, it's rough, man. It is rough. That that scene still gets me hard every single time. Um. But yeah, I think uh, we have we have talked about this movie quite a bit, and I'm sure that we could go on forever. But this is a podcast, and we do want to keep it reasonably short for our listeners. So uh, I think we'll have to break off the conversation there, Drew. We always get into really great conversations every time you're on the show, and I love it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, suffice it to say, I think we all love this film. I think that we all think it's a great film. And uh, it is one that I would recommend anybody. I mean, if you're listening, hopefully you've already seen it, because otherwise we would have just spoiled the entire thing for you. Uh, but um, if you have seen it and it's been a while, go see it again. <laughs> Watch it again. Um, it's well worth the time. Uh, it's really a great piece of uh, cinematic history and filmmaking. And it's, uh, yeah, it's solid. Indeed. In... Indeed. Uh, so thanks again, Drew, for coming on the show. Uh, always a joy to have you. Always a joy to talk about these movies with you. Um, My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. We hope you'll be on again sometime soon. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm sure I'll bring in something a lot less respectable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we want to get back on track here, right? I mean... <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Thanks again for coming on. It, it's just it's just great. So. Uh, listeners out there, uh, please join us for our next episode when we'll be talking about The Mummy, the new Tom Cruise vehicle that is getting a whole lot of marketing dollars and a whole lot of terrible reviews. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really, really excited to see it. Um, 
And uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that movie in our next episode, and we hope you join us.